1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show Garbage Day at the Rices. That's all I'm going to say. It's a real relief to Clark, who, by the way, is engineering today's program. James Blind is off on uh, vacation, making his way to Texas, where apparently they had some tornadoes. Uh, earlier today. So we've been following that a little bit. Anyway, we're glad to have you with us. We will be talking uh, with Katie Boyce, who's the founder and principal of, of, rather, Advanced Christian Academy. And I'm looking forward to that. It's part of our effort to shine a light on Christian education in the Portland metro area. We won't cover all the Christian schools, but a good number of them. And it's been exciting to learn more about uh, the quality of uh, these schools, what makes them Christian, uh, the the level of academic rigor, what they emphasize and uh, their approach and all of that. You can find out more by going to their websites. And one place to start might be listenersavings.com. There we have listed all the schools we've been talking about and folks we 've been talking to, and you can click on their uh, their icon and there learn more about each of the schools that might be located closer to you, although with Christian education, geography isn 't always the uh, the number one factor in determining the best fit for your sons and daughters or grandchildren for that matter, uh, so you can go to that website we 'll be talking uh, today, however, with Katie Boyce again she 's the founder and principal at Advanced. Christian Academy. She'll join us at about 530. So uh, listen for the opportunity for that. Also wanted to remind you, uh, or may not remind you, but uh, we had been promoting a conversation with Dan Gaynor in the first hour today. He's the vice president of, um, well, actually, who have we been promoting today? I've, I've got the wrong name here. Uh, David Brogg, who is the author of Saving Israel, Um, He had to cancel. Apparently, he had a meeting today with the vice president and for some odd reason, he chose to meet with the vice president of the United States rather than do an interview on the Georgine Rice Show. I know it's confusing, but... Uh, Nonetheless, we're going to work on rescheduling that conversation. We are going to be talking with uh, Dan Gaynor from the Media Research Center. He's the vice president of business and culture there. We're going to talk about a New York Times op-ed piece that called for Democrats to temper their commitment to abortion in order to regain uh, the the emphasis of the article was for uh, Catholics. Uh, They've lost a lot of Catholic support. And the writer of the article, I believe was a priest, suggested that one way to attract Uh, Many of their uh, former followers back would be to lighten up on the subject of uh, abortion. The response was uh, rather startling, although not at all surprising. It was a response from the media, not the broader uh, culture. So we'll talk with Dan Gaynor about that and what that may or may not actually mean. Well, first, a look at some of the news. The Trump administration's pivot from health care to taxes should find a receptive audience. More than half of voters feel their taxes are too high and nearly three-quarters think the tax system should be reformed this year. Of course, they've thought that for decades now, but just one-third expect their taxes to go down under President Trump because, you know, looking back, the promises that have been made in the past sort of inform our expectations for the present. In fact, when the latest Fox News poll asked voters what's the one thing they really want President Trump to accomplish, Cut taxes is topped only by create jobs and destroy ISIS. Well, the national poll of registered voters was conducted the 12th through the 14th of this month before House Republicans pulled the health care replacement bill. A majority, 55 percent, think they uh, pay too much in taxes, down from a record 63 uh, percent in March of 2015. 40% say their tax bill is just about right, and 2% think Uncle Sam takes too little. I'd love to be in that camp where you feel like Uncle Sam takes too little. 45% of Democrats think their taxes are too high, down from 61% who said the same in 2015. Uh, 7 in 10 Republicans continue to think their taxes are too high 68% in 2015 and 2017 voters living in households with annual incomes over $50,000. That's about 55% as well as those making under $50,000, about 53% say they pay too much in taxes. I think you're starting to see a theme here uh, that folks uh, think they pay too much in taxes with the exception of that very small number who thinks Man, I wish we could just pay more. Although that money could always be donated to worthier causes where The overhead is probably not quite as high, but nonetheless, um, the Republicans might find a receptive audience when they talk about tax reform, although uh, whether or not people believe it's actually going to happen this time, we'll just have to wait and see. Meanwhile, Republicans haven't given up on Obamacare's repeal. From the CNN story, President Donald Trump and Vice President Mike Pence spoke with several House members over the weekend to discuss a path forward. A Senior administration official and Republican officials with knowledge of the discussion told CNN and House Speaker Paul Ryan, despite saying Friday that Obamacare is the law of the land, appears ready to keep going as well. Trump himself, rather, isn't giving up, although he says he's ready to move on to uh, dealing with taxes. Meanwhile, Health and Human Services Secretary Tom Price told Congress today that he will enforce Obamacare so long as it remains the law of the land, including its mandate requiring Americans to hold coverage, though dodging thornier questions about the president's commitment to making the program work. Mr. Trump and congressional Republicans pledged to swiftly repeal the Affordable Care Act and replace it with a better plan this year. But a GOP rebellion doomed their first attempt before it hit the House floor, leaving Mr. Price to manage a law that Republicans say is failing on its own, but still covers millions. The fate of their health care really now lies in your administration's hands. That's a quote from Representative Rosa DeLauro, a Connecticut Democrat, speaking to Mr. Price at an Appropriations Committee hearing on Mr. Trump's proposed cut of $15 billion from Health and Human Services budget. Mr. Price testified there isn't much proof that Obamacare's individual mandate is bolstering health coverage, though he is sworn to uphold the law's provisions that he doesn't like. Of course, that's always been the case for bureaucrats. It doesn't matter if you like it or not, you follow the law. Well, at least that used to be the case. So long as the law is on the books, we at the department, he went on to say, are obliged to uphold it. Yet Democrats fear that Mr. Trump will chip away at the law from within, citing his decision to yank the uh, up to five million dollars in ads for healthcare.gov, the main Obamacare website, before the critical enrollment period deadline. Mr. Price said that he is committed to making sure people can find affordable coverage, but he doesn't know if the Trump administration will maintain funding Obamacare's ads call centers and websites, saying the spending process just got started and the decision to pull ads occurred prior to uh, his arrival. Well, Obamacare's exchanges suffered their uh, first year-over-year decline in sign-ups since their launch in late 2013. About 12.2 million selected coverage for 2017 on the web-based exchanges set up under the Affordable Care Act, compared to 12.7 million during last year's open enrollment season. 12.7. not a whole lot of difference. Um, Democrats cried sabotage, but also pointed to a Congressional Budget Office analysis that said the law is not collapsing, as the GOP claims. Asked point blank by Ms. Delario if Mr. Trump will repeal the law or strengthen and improve it, Mr. Price said the administration is committed to making certain the American people have access to... To affordable healthcare. Well, the most pressing decision facing the president is whether to continue cost-sharing payments to insurers who help low-income people on the exchange afford out-of-pocket costs. House Republicans had won a ruling last year that uh, then-President Obama was breaking the law by making payments to insurance companies, even though Congress had specifically canceled that money. So the drama continues. We'll follow the story. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 15 minutes after 4 o'clock.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we'll talk with Dan Gaynor, Vice President of Business and Culture at the Media Research Center, on a New York Times op ed. And the rather telling response from uh, media who responded on Twitter. Well, the White House signaled on Tuesday that the president will sign a controversial bill that rolls back the Obama era Internet privacy rules, as they're called, drawing the ire of online advocates who said he's failing his first major drain the swamp test by allowing broadband companies to sell users' personal browsing histories. Well, the Senate passed the bill last week and it cleared the House on Tuesday on a 215 to 205 vote, meaning it now goes straight to Mr. Trump. Well, the bill would revoke an October ruling issued by the Federal Communications Commission that imposed tight restrictions on how broadband companies, also known as Internet Service Providers or ISPs, are able to handle their users' information. Under the FCC's rules, companies had to get their customers to opt in before their data could be sold. Now, this would reverse something that was only established in October, so I'm not sure how dramatic a change this will be ultimately. But nonetheless, if Mr. Trump follows through on signing the bill, consumers uh, would still be. Allowed to opt out, but they would have to uh, do so explicitly. You would have to take the initiative rather than the ISP being required to get your permission uh, to provide your information. Well, the advocate said the companies could impose a surcharge on people who wanted their data kept secret. Well, this is staggering. This is almost a surrender, said House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi. If the Republicans are allowed to do this, we have surrendered all thoughts of privacy for the American people. Another gross exaggeration that is so common coming out of Washington. All 215 yes votes Tuesday came from Republicans, while all uh, Democrats uh, present voted against the bill in the House, as did 15 Republicans. Beneath the very public fight over privacy is a battle over supremacy between broadband providers like Comcast, Verizon and AT&T on the one hand, and the big popular websites such as Google and Facebook, known in the industry as Edge providers, all of them want access to Americans' data, which is highly valued by customers. Well, under the FCC's rules, the websites would still be able to collect and sell the information users sent them, but the broadband providers would have faced restrictions, so they're making a distinction. Well, Republicans uh, said repealing the FCC rule was a matter of fairness, saying the government shouldn't be picking economic winners and losers in the technology market, and consumers can negotiate with their ISPs on their own. Uh, with all due respects, as Steve Scalise, a Louisiana Republican, the internet was not broken and did not need the federal government to come in and try to fix it or protect it. Democrats, however, said repealing the FCC rules means a race to the bottom, freeing all technology companies to collect and sell whatever information they can glean, which is what they did, of course, before. This was passed in October, just a few months ago. They uh, predicted rather, payback from angry Internet users. My phones are ringing off the hook, said one representative, a Democrat out of California. Why are you pushing this? Americans don't want it, and your voters are just beginning to pay attention. Well, Reddit, one of the largest active Internet communities, rallied against the GOP's moves, and users pleaded with Mr. Trump to step in and veto the bill. All right, Mr. President, they said you can go ahead and drain the swamp now, said one user who uh, wanted the name. To be um, withheld. Well, some Reddit users said if the privacy protections are revoked, they would pool their money to try to buy the browsing histories of key Republican lawmakers. Internet privacy advocates said Republicans' push even violated their own policies. The Electronic Frontier Foundation said Jeff, uh, Senator Jeff Flake is uh, the chief sponsor of that bill, has privacy protections on his own congressional website. If you're a U.S. lawmaker, protecting privacy doesn't just mean avoiding collecting their data when they visit your website. It means standing up for users' rights every day on Capitol Hill. Now, those rights are still in place, but you have to opt in for them to be imposed. The issue of ISP privacy arose in the latter years of the Obama administration when the FCC claimed the power to control broadband companies as a common carrier. Republicans said the FCC was stealing power from the FTC, which the GOP said was the correct place to patrol online privacy. So it's a matter of location. Apparently, after claiming powers under the common carrier stat, uh, statute, the FCC then issued the privacy rule in October of last year because that rule came late in the tenure of the lame duck president. It gave Republicans the chance to use the Congressional Review Act, which is now uh, apparently in place. So disaster uh, about to uh, uh, occur, disaster averted, depends on where you stand on the issues. We'll follow uh, what happens next. Um, As that uh, develops. And again, the president has yet to sign it, but has signaled that he's likely to do so. Meanwhile, in West Virginia's bucolic Boone County. There are scattered reminders everywhere of better days. A tattered American flag, dusty swing sets, metal chimes blowing in the wind. A decade ago, this coal community was thriving. It led the nation in mining jobs, had a vibrant economy, was giving back to its people. Then a wave of environmental regulations hit, along with an overall shift toward other forms of energy. And by the way, competition had played a role in it as well, but aimed at cutting out coal in favor of wind and solar. The changes had devastating effects in towns built around the industry. Sort of like like the timber industry in Oregon and Washington. It's been heartbreaking, says the director of the Boone County Community and Economic Development Corporation. Uh, It impacted every level, uh, the director says, Chris Mitchell. But communities like Boone are seeing new hope amid a renewed effort in Washington to peel back red tape and invest once again in clean coal. My administration is putting an end to the war on coal, President Trump said on Tuesday as he signed an executive order aimed at rolling back the Obama-era uh, regulations. We're optimistic and hopeful, Chris Hamilton, senior vice president of the West Virginia Coal Association, uh, said ahead of the announcement. Hamilton, who started in the industry as a coal miner straight out of high school, said he's seen renewed confidence and interest in West Virginian coal from the investment community. Since November, there's been an uptick in pricing levels and growth in certain coal operations that he largely attributes to the president. After eight years of regulations, we have to hang our hope on President Trump, Hamilton said. The future of the industry remains unclear. Democrats, of course, ripped President Trump's executive order as bad for the environment and claimed it would not actually bring coal jobs back. Indeed, while regulations have hurt the coal sector, experts say the industry's biggest hurdle is the abundance of cheap natural gas. Gas prices have fallen, making it much more attractive than coal. Another problem is technology. As coal companies have gotten more efficient at extracting coal, fewer workers are needed. Coal's presence in American power markets has fallen to 32 percent from about 50 percent a decade ago. The bottom line, according to experts, is that even though the Obama administration did all it could to kill coal, it wasn't those policies alone that choked the life from a once vibrant industry. Still, President Trump's bid to ease regulations is boosting morale, giving coal mining communities across Appalachia a shot in rebuilding. Everyone here is... uh, uh, tied to coal," says uh, one coal miner. "It's your family. It's your in your blood." Well, Mitchell grew up in that county. Her father, now retired, was a coal miner. Her brother was in the industry. One grandfather worked on the railroad, while the other worked in deep uh, in a deep mine. Once the coal job started to dry up, employment plummeted. Struggling workers were forced to flee the uh, only place they had ever uh, called home. And today, there are brought up, uh, boarded up houses, rather burned down lots, and displays of. Uh, Deep decay. But there are signs of hope. Just how uh, big those signs will be and how broad it may ultimately be remains to be seen because, again, the landscape has changed and coal has greater competition. But at least they are at this moment uh, declaring themselves to be hopeful. Well, a former Obama official has uh, disclosed that there was, in fact, a a rush to get intelligence on the Trump team. When we come back from the break, we'll talk more about that. But this is a former top Obama administration official acknowledging efforts by her colleagues to gather intelligence on Trump team uh, ties to Russia before Donald Trump took office and to conceal the sources of that intelligence from the incoming administration. Unlawful, not altogether clear at this point, but at least an admission that has at least on one side of the ledger, been believed from the beginning. Evelyn uh, Farkas was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Deven- Defense rather under Obama. She made the uh, disclosure while on the air uh, with MSNBC's Mike uh, Brzezinski. Um, uh, again, she says that her colleagues uh, were, in fact, involved in trying to gather as much intelligence as possible. And we've heard before that part of the impetus behind that effort was apparently fear that the uh, incoming administration might destroy Uh, intelligence that was unfavorable uh, to their election campaign. We'll tell you more about that in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show at about uh, 30 minutes after 4 o'clock. Coming up uh, later this hour, we'll talk with Dan Gaynor about a New York Times op-ed piece calling Democrats to temper their commitment to abortion if they want to revitalize the party and to woo uh, Catholics back to the Democrat Party. We'll tell you what the response was a bit later this hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: 34 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I was mentioning before the break that a former Obama official has disclosed that there was, in fact, a rush to get intelligence on the Trump team. to notice wiretap is not part of the story. She does say this is uh, Micah Brzezinski speaking on MSNBC. I was urging my former colleagues and, frankly speaking, the people on the Hill. It was more actually aimed at telling the Hill people, get as much information as you can, get as much intelligence as you can before President Obama leaves the administration. Um, the senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, where the uh, person now works, because I had a fear that somehow that information would disappear with the senior Obama people who left. So it would be hidden away in the bureaucracy that the Trump folks, if they found out how they how we knew what they uh, uh, knew about their the Trump staff dealing with Russians, that they would uh, try to compromise those sources and methods, meaning we no longer have access to that intelligence. So apparently in this interview, the admission is made that if they knew how we acquired the information, um, they would certainly oppose that, but that the information itself was uh, important enough that um, crossing lines that should not have been crossed apparently was acceptable. Well, the comments come as lawmakers on Capitol Hill over... Uh, House Intelligence Committee Chairman Devin Nunez claimed last week that surveillance operations incidentally collected Trump team communications during the transition. Well, critics have accused uh, him of carrying water for Trump and called on him to recuse himself from Russian matters, but he and his uh, congressional allies have pushed back. Aside from questions over whether communications were properly gathered during the transition and before, there's speculation on how widely such information was disseminated, which is a violation of law. Farkas described a rush to spread the material before Trump took office. And you'll recall uh, President Obama changed the rules to make that possible. So I became very worried because not enough was coming out into the open and I knew that there was uh, more. We have uh, very good intelligence on Russia, she said. So then I had talked to some of my former colleagues and I knew that they were trying also to help get information to the Hill. So this is an admission, uh, perhaps, of a violation of law. Um, Because the information that would have caught uh, U.S. citizens in their surveillance of foreign uh, nationals is illegal to make public. So what becomes of this um, and the uh, investigation that's likely to follow is uh, at this point not altogether clear. What we do know is that the leaders of the Senate Intelligence Committee announced today that they are expanding their investigation of Russia's interference in the U.S., Presidential campaign and beyond vowing to remain independent and get to the bottom of this, as they put it, amid mounting controversy over a similar probe on the House side. Well, the senators announced that they are now scheduling interviews, reviewing thousands of sensitive documents, and they're preparing to issue subpoenas if necessary. This investigation scope will go wherever the intelligence leads it. That's a quote from the chairman of the uh, uh, committee, uh, Richard Burr. Uh, speaking to reporters alongside top panel Democrat Senator Mark Warner. A nice sight to see them side by side agreeing to the course of the investigation. The committee is set to hold its first public hearing on the Russian issue on Thursday, a session that will feature several foreign policy experts. But on the sidelines, Burr and Warner revealed new details about the scope of their investigation. Burr said they've devoted seven professional staff members to the investigation, and they're going through an unprecedented amount of documents. Uh, He said they're reviewing thousands of raw intelligence and other products. Further, he said the committee this week began to schedule its first interviews, making 20 requests so far with five already scheduled. He confirmed that Jared Kushner, uh, President Trump's son-in-law and senior advisor, is among those and uh, the committee will interview. We will get to the bottom of this, Warner said now. My guess is uh, a lot of people are going to be unhappy with this whole thing. On the one hand, those who believe that the Trump uh, campaign was somehow involved with the Russians, only information that supports that view uh, will be accepted. For those who believe that uh, the Trump campaigners were um, information about their dealings with uh, with Russia or or not was improperly made available in violation of the law, that only that information is relevant. My hope is we get to the bottom of it all. Uh, how and if the uh, Russians influenced the uh, the campaigns, we know that they didn't influence the election. And sometimes they they use those phrases interchangeably. But they, uh, if they had access to and were responsible for influencing the campaigns, that needs to be uh, made public. If there were violations of law in making information available about U.S. citizens, in this case, Trump campaign workers. Uh, widely available in violation of the law, that needs to be disclosed. I just hope we get to the bottom of it so we can move on and uh, they can deal with uh, serious matters, Uh, those being serious matters as well, but serious matters of uh, domestic and um, national security and foreign policy import. Well, Mitch McConnell says, and I quote, We are optimistic they will not be successful in keeping this man from joining the Supreme Court very soon. That's a quote from the Chicago Tribune. Americans apparently want him confirmed. The Daily Caller has a a poll. And National Review says this, Judge Neil Gorsuch is a mainstream conservative judge who has earned the respect of liberals in the legal world. And this fact has caused no end of frustration to Democrats who are resolved to block a vote on his nomination to the Supreme Court. Since they do not control the Senate, they could not do what the Republicans did last year and refuse to consider the nomination of a president they oppose. Hearings took place. The Gorsuch acquitted himself. Well, Democrats are having to invent spurious uh, justifications for their opposition. Uh, And the primary issue is that uh, President Obama's Supreme Court nominee did not get any hearings, let alone an up or down vote. Well, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, he says, will vote to send Neil Gorsuch's Supreme Court nomination to the full Senate next Monday, and Gorsuch will be confirmed on Friday, period. Again, quoting Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell speaking uh, at a news conference. I repeat, we're going to get Judge Gorsuch confirmed, McConnell said, and the vote uh, will give Democrats the opportunity to invoke cloture. Uh, we'll see where that ends, he added. Well, McConnell said it will be up to Democrats to determine how the confirmation process goes. If no Democrat is willing to confirm Gorsuch, Republicans could change Senate rules to allow him to be confirmed, confirmed with 51 votes instead of 60. McConnell said several times he's confident that Gorsuch will be confirmed. Speaking on the Senate floor Tuesday, he, uh, uh, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer rejected the notion that Democrats are opposing Gorsuch in retaliation for Republicans failing to take up the nomination of Merrick Garland, although that was stated several times during the uh, hearing. Uh, there are several principled reasons to oppose him, despite the fact that we unanimously supported him the last time around, Schumer went on to say. That was a little editorial comment on my part. The senator argues that Gorsuch won't be an independent check on the president. He is not a mainstream justice, but has a deep seated conservative ideology, and he favors the powerful over the weak, which is an absurd statement when you're talking about a judge who doesn't, uh, you know, you don't pick winners or losers, the powerful. That's a political uh, statement, and that's not what a judge does. Nonetheless, we'll see what happens uh, if the Democrats are going to fall on their sword for this appointment that maintains the balance of the Supreme Court, or they hold off for the next appointment that would shift the balance of the court if the uh, president were successful. All of that will be determined uh, by what happens, apparently, through the remainder of this and and next week. And we'll certainly follow that um, as the... Uh, story develops. Meanwhile, the Democratic National Committee Chairman Tom Perez has launched a major overhaul of the party's organization, which has been stung by recent crises. And the DNC has requested resignation letters from all current staffers. Now, some are delighted that this indicates something uh, rather serious on the DNC side, but it's not all that unco- not all that uncommon, or rather it is common for uh, those kinds of resignations to be called for. In the same way, when a new administration comes in to Washington, you ask the previous administration appointees to resign. But anyway, party staff routinely see major turnover with the boss, and they've been alerted to expect such a move. However, the mass resignation letters will give Perez a chance to completely remake the DNC's headquarters from scratch. Well, staffing had already reached unusual lows following a round of post-election layoffs in December, and he's the third DNC chair in a year. Immediately after Perez's selection as a party chairman in late February and advisor, to outgoing DNC interim chair, Donna Brazile, Leah Doherty. She asked every employee to submit a letter of resignation dated April 15th, according to multiple sources familiar with the party's uh, internal workings. A committee advising Perez on this uh, transition is now interviewing staff and others as part of a top-to-bottom review process. Some, I'm guessing, will be rehired, others not. Uh, They're going to decide not only who will stay and who will go, but how the party should be constructed in the future. Uh, major staffing and organizational cha- organizational changes, rather, will be announced in the coming weeks, one aide said. This is long-standing precedent at the DNC and has happened during multiple chair transitions, a spokesman said. The process has started before the election of the new chair. From the beginning, Tom has been adamant that we structure the DNC for future campaigns. Current and future DNC staff will be integral to that effort, they say. And over the last few months, the DNC staff has done incredible work under immense pressure to hold Trump accountable. So that, um, uh, that uh, process has begun and no doubt will continue. And finally, California prosecutors on Tuesday charged two pro-life activists who made undercover videos of themselves uh, trying to buy fetal tissue from Planned Parenthood, rather successfully anyway, with 15 felonies, saying they invaded the privacy of medical providers by filming without consent. The charges against David Daleiden and Sandra Merritt of the Center for Medical Progress come eight months after similar charges were dropped in Texas. State Attorney General Xavier Becara, a longtime congressional Democrat who took over the investigation in January, said in a statement that the state will not tolerate the criminal recording of conversations. Prosecutors say Delighton of Davis, California, and Merritt of San Jose filmed 14 people without permission between October 2013 and, D- and July 2015 in Los Angeles, San Francisco, El Dorado counties. One felony count was filed for each person. The 15th was for criminal conspiracy to invade privacy. Delighton said in an email to the Associated Press that the bogus charges are coming from Planned Parenthood's political cronies. The public knows the real criminals are Planned Parenthood and their business partners. Well, this kind of... Uh, Filming has been done by media for many, many years. I mean, 2020 wouldn't have a show as well as 60 Minutes without it. Whether or not that will extend to these two, as it uh, did in Texas when the charges were dismissed, uh, we'll just have to wait and see. But we will follow the story as it develops. Up next, we're going to talk with Dan Gaynor, Vice President of Business and Culture at the Media Research Center. The New York Times uh, published an op-ed calling Democrats to temper their commitment to abortion in an effort to um, attract uh, some who have drifted away based on that subject. We'll tell you more about it when he joins us in our next segment.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast, it is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Well, on Monday, the New York Times published an op ed with a headline to win again. Democrats must stop being the abortion party. It was written by Thomas Groom, who's a professor of theology and religious education at Boston College. The piece argued that Democrats should change their uh, their tone on abortion to win back the Catholic vote for his efforts. uh, Media from Vice to CNN lashed out and others even joked about hosting abortion parties. It was rather shocking, and in fact, some of what was uh, written cannot be repeated on air because it would not be allowed, and quite frankly, I wouldn't use the words. Anyway, well, here to talk with us about it is Dan Gaynor. He's the Vice President of Business and Culture at the Media Research Center. Thank you so much for joining us. Well,
3: thank you for having us on. This is uh, I don't like to crow about what we do sometimes, but Katie Yerder, who works with me, wrote this. And it's Mm -hmm. such an important piece because... This is such a peek at how far left much of the press is. Yes, these are all the cool sites aimed at millennials, Vice, in particular, Broadley, Huffington Post. All these sites are aimed at young people. This is how the left changes the culture and has turned this from a culture of life to a culture of death. And you look at these comments, and they're astonishing, the the reaction is not oh, we can have a little disagreement. No, it is uh, blank you this and blank that. It is... Uh, not
2: just unrepeatable on air, but as you said, maybe unrepeatable. Yeah, unrepeatable at all. Well, the the op ed was a a sincere effort to try to advise the Democrats on how to restore some of the por- the, the support that's been lost. And the suggestion was uh, that if you aren't quite so heavy on the subject of abortion, if you allow uh, for for uh, you know broader discussion on the subject, it might attract some of the uh, voters that aligned with the party in the past. And this was treated with such derision that i think you're absolutely right it really um was shocking although not altogether surprising we're talking about the re- the response from media sources uh to this op ed piece
3: well yeah, and you look at just vice is this hip mirror media outlet that we're supposed to treat like it's a legitimate outlet even though they're the the ones who took uh the, the goofy basketball player to north korea uh, this is this is this is sort of uh You give, you give idiots, uh, control of a news network and let them do anything they want. And these are the kind of people you get. So you got Eve Pieser, who's one of the political people. Hey, Twitter, please join me in screaming no. And she has like a no, 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 no at the top of your blank lungs. Uh, their sports writer, uh, totally misreads what is happening. Democrats are the party of liberty continually putting defense against maniacs. And yes, by maniacs, they mean anybody who doesn't want to kill children. And it it just goes downhill from there. Even, and what's amazing is how disconnected they are. Eugene Scott's one of, one of CNN's reporters. And he comes up to that piece assumes that abortion is a key reason people voted for Trump. Haven't seen any data to support that. Well, then you're an idiot because that means you didn't look. Even your own network reported data to support that, that conservatives and in general, one out of five people voted based on the Supreme Court, and and mostly that turned toward Trump. So the fact that Trump was strongly backed by the pro-life movement and vowed to give us a pro-life justice like uh, Justice Gorsuch is a huge factor in his win, and the media don't want to talk about it because that means, oh my gosh, other people might disagree with us.
2: Well, it, it, it seems to me if, if they're trying to support uh, the Democratic Party's view on the subject that they're uh, it's rather costly um, unwillingness to acknowledge the truth of the statement because uh, it's going to lose them support moving forward. Were there any more encouraging responses suggesting that that perhaps uh, the party should uh, take another look at how we approach the subject and embrace those who hold a different point of view? Were there any examples of that kind of response?
3: If there were, we didn't we didn't highlight them. There weren't. There weren't a lot. This is this is roundly reviled on the left. They they don't want to compromise on this issue. In fact, you you saw the the march the the march that they had right after the inauguration. It wasn't a march for women. It became a march for some women, and it became a march for abortion. If you saw the those people they put out there, and then when. Conservative women's groups tried to sign on. They were they were excised, and then there was a statement of principles that came out from that heavily pro Soros uh, group supported march that was thoroughly pro abortion. The left has actually gone further aggressive. The 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 liberals who have told us for years that we should embrace how Europe does things don't want to embrace how Europe does things when it comes to abortion, because Europe is actually much more conservative on abortion than we
2: are. Well, it was, uh, again, it wasn't altogether surprising, but the language was very uh, shocking, and it was an expose on how, um, how sold on the uh, subject of abortion the media is uh, and unwilling to take seriously the, the suggestion that perhaps that's a divisive issue that could be better approached to benefit one uh, party on the left. Dan Gaynor, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Again, Dan Gaynor is the Vice President of Business and Culture at the Media Research Center on the New York Times op-ed piece. Well, Britain formally filed for divorce from the European Union today, walking out on a 44-year relationship and acting a decision made by U.K. voters in a referendum nine months ago and launching both Britain and the bloc into uncharted territory. Now, the process is slated to take about a two-year period, although many suggest that it's going to be impossible to accomplish everything necessary over the next two years. But the EU official has received the letter from Britain setting the process in motion, and it cannot be reversed. Prime Minister Theresa May uh, told House, uh, the House of Commons that she has invoked Article 50 of the EU's key treaty, the trigger for a two-year countdown to Britain's exit. Now there's a lot of paperwork that goes back and forth before, uh, this, uh, uh this Article 50 is uh, completed. I think it's the month of August that Europe kind of takes off September as things kick off again. Many are suggesting it won't be until the first of next year uh, that some of the serious negotiations on some of the, the major issues will uh, be enjoined. But nonetheless, just before May's statement, Britain's EU envoy, Tim Barrow, hand-delivered a letter from uh, from her to the EU Council President Donald Tusk in Brussels, and the... Uh, Uh, The movement has been set in motion. The letter, which is several pages long, was whisked to Brussels aboard the uh, Eurostar train, British media reported. Barrow arrived at the European Council headquarters carrying a briefcase this morning, their time, uh, before his appointment with Tusk. The letter was received. May's office said she will tell lawmakers that uh, the UK is embarking on a momentous journey and should unite to forge a global Britain. Uh, It's my fierce determination to get the right deal for every single person in this country, she said. And it's amazing all of the negotiations that will be necessary in order for uh, UK to uh, function as an independent outside of the EU and in uh, its connections with other non-EU nations. It's my fierce determination, she said, to get it right. Britain's Treasury chief, Philip Hammond, said that triggering Brexit was a pivotal moment for the country, but denied the country was taking a leap in the dark. We all have the same agenda. We are all seeking to get the best possible deal for Britain, he told the BBC. Well, Hammond said he was optimistic of forging, a, forging rather, a relationship that will strengthen the UK will strengthen the European Union as well, although that's a tall order. Gus O'Donnell, the UK's former top civil servant, was less certain saying that we are in a plane uh, being flown by members of the EU and we're about to jump out and we've got a parachute that was designed by the people flying the plane and they designed it in a way to deter anybody else jumping out. Well, Britain and the EU have two years to unpick a tapestry of rules, regulations, agreements stitched over more than four decades since Britain joined what was then the European Economic Community, in 1973. Well, EU officials are due to circulate draft negotiating guidelines within days, and uh, bloc leaders, minus May, uh, will meet April the 29th to adopt a common position. Britain says it's not turning its back on its neighbors and wants to remain friends. May has said that the UK will become stronger, fairer, more united, and more outward-looking and will seek a new, deep, and special partnership with the European Union. Many many British businesses fear the impact of leaving the EU's vast single market of some 500 million people. Senior British officials say that they're confident of striking a close new free trade relationship with the bloc, but a successful outcome to the complex and emotionally fraught negotiations are far from certain. Brexit has profound implications for Britain's economy, society and even unity. The divisive decision to leave the EU has given new impetus to the drive for Scottish independence and undermine the foundations of Northern Ireland's peace settlement. It's also a major blow to the EU after decades of expansion to lose one of its largest members, anti-EU populists, including France uh, in their far right leader, um, Marine Le Pen, Hope the uh, impulses that drove Britain to turn its back on the EU will be repeated across the continent. And so others are looking to see how this um, deal ends up to determine whether or not they will follow suit. So it will be an interesting two years, which began in earnest today. We've got news and traffic at the top of the hour. Later in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Katie Boyce, founder and principal of Advanced Christian Academy. Looking forward to that conversation and giving you the opportunity to learn more. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you know, we have been uh, focusing on Christian schools in our community for the last several weeks, and today is no exception. I am delighted that we're going to be talking about Advanced Christian Academy. They're located in Gresham, and the mission at Advanced Christian Academy is to provide an environment of learning where the Word of God is standard for both the students and for the teachers. They want God to be at the center of the school classes, their activities, the decisions that are made, that scholarly excellence and godly character are what they strive for. Here to talk with us more about Advanced Christian Academy is Katie Boyce. She is the principal. She also teaches fifth and sixth graders. Thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thank you for having me, Georgine.
2: Well, let's start by talking about the name Advanced Christian Academy. It's a Bible-based school, um, but advanced is applied in a little bit different uh, way than people who aren't familiar with the name might imagine.
4: Yes, that's true. When we say advanced, we want every student to advance to their full potential. And as we know in this day and age, not every student learns in the same way. So our kids do not fit in a box, Mm
1: -hmm. and
4: we attempt to meet every kid where they're at and move them forward to reach their full academic, spiritual, and social potential.
2: Now, uh, Advanced um, Christian Academy uh, began in 2011 with a dream of offering affordable, quality education. And the way that you've gone about that is a little bit different. Uh, You meet four days a week with the fifth day off. Talk a little bit about how the school uh, week is structured.
4: Yes, we go Monday through Thursday. And what we attempt to do is really focus during those four days on the key academic concepts as well as the electives that we need. And we managed to get all of the curriculum we need in those days, and that still allows them a third day with their family to pursue outside activities or whatever else they need to do with their family, which we have found is kind of limited in other schools at this point, where that five days a week, extensive homework, that can really cut into other things in the family life.
2: Now, the the foundation of the school uh, obviously is a a Christ-centered focus, but let's talk about the academics of the school. How do you structure that uh, part of how Advanced Christian Academy functions?
4: What we do is we, in the mornings, we provide our math and our reading groups, which are our core foundational academic groups. They are the same time across the board in every class, and that allows students to move fluidly from class to class based upon where they're at. If they're working ahead in math, they go to a higher math group. If they're struggling that year in reading, they jump down to a little bit lower reading group, and then they go right back into their peer group. We try, when at all possible, not to hold a kid back. We just want them to move according to their skill level in every subject and just keep making progress, moving forward. That's our goal.
2: Yeah, and that's such a great approach because for students who are advanced, it doesn't prevent them from moving forward at their own pace. For students who need a little extra attention or time on a subject, that gives them the freedom to do that without the stigma of of somehow not advancing at a, a rate that is expected.
4: Absolutely. Absolutely, we're all we all have God-given gifts, and they're not across the board, as I'm sure we wish they were, but they are not. And so we take each child's strength, we maximize it, we take academic areas where they struggle, and we really you know bump that up and give them the skills they need to move forward in that area as well.
2: Now, an academic environment is an excellent way to uh, focus on and develop character. How does Advanced Christian Academy uh, promote character development uh, along with that development of academic prowess?
4: Well, we have Bible classes that our teachers teach every week, but I always tell them the Bible classes are more of a structured thing. What I want is I want that character, that Bible promotion to be throughout the whole day. I don't want someone to be in our building for more than a couple minutes before they recognize we're a Christian school. Mm -hmm. If we didn't have the name Christian in our name, would somebody be in there and say, wait, there's something different about this school. That is my goal. So in every interaction, in every way we interact with the kids, we want to come from a Christ-centered approach. Compassion, love, just really caring about those kids. That is always our goal, taking time to pray with them. If they have something upcoming, we pause and we pray throughout the day because that we want them to reach for God first, just as we do. That is our main focus of what we are trying to impact them
2: with. Mm. And what is, your, what is your relationship with parents whose students are being Uh, taught at Advanced Christian Academy. I think one of the frustrations parents have is that they oftentimes feel that they are somehow left out of a very important part of the development of their sons and daughters.
4: We truly see our school as a family, and we care about our families. We pray for them. We send thank you cards and sympathy cards. We have baby showers for people having babies. We We know our families. I do not believe you can teach kids and work closely with families if you don't develop a true relationship with them. So our parents can come in with a complaint, with a concern, and we are going to say, hey, let's go sit down. Let's talk through this. Let's figure out a plan that works for all of us. And nine times out of ten, solves everything, and we all move forward happy. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of our goal.
2: We're talking about Advanced Christian Academy. They're located in Gresham, and uh, Katie Boyce is the principal. She also teaches fifth and sixth grade. An important part of any education environment is the faculty, uh, the men and women who interact on a daily basis with those students. Tell us a little bit about uh, your fellow teachers at Advanced Christian Academy.
4: I work with the most amazing group of teachers. They are all so qualified. They are qualified with their credentials, but more than that, they're qualified in that they truly love the kids that they work with. And their sole goal is meet every kid where they're at and move them forward as much as possible. I, I couldn't ask for a better team. They come to me crying over a concern with their kids saying, will you pray with me? I really want to make sure that this works out for this child. And I love that. I love that their, their main concern is never a paycheck. It's what can we do to make sure that these kids are getting all that they need to succeed. Mm-hmm. So that just makes me feel so confident in what we offer our students every day. They are safe. They are loved. They are well cared for. And I hope that their parents know that as well, that they trust us each day. And out. we take very seriously the fact that they're entrusting their precious children to us four days a week. That is a huge commitment and responsibility that we do not take lightly.
2: Uh, My understanding is that at Advanced Christian Academy, the goal is that all children will leave the school stronger in their spiritual walk as well as their academics. And that uh, that is a challenge for any educator. But to do that in an environment where they are cared for, where their innocence is protected... Uh, where they can see uh, faith in Christ lived out in the lives of their teachers and then modeled again uh, back in their homes is such a a blessing to them personally and gives them such an advantage and really is a, a, a ministry to the broader community as well.
4: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm so honored to do what I do. I love my job. I look forward to it every single day, and I just see it as my calling. That is what God has called me to do. I love children, and I just want to do everything that I can to be impacting their lives in a positive way.
2: Mm, so grateful that you do. Now, for those who are interested in learning more about Advanced Christian Academy in Gresham, uh, what's the best way for them to find out more?
4: They can go to our website, which is at advancedchristian.org, or they're welcome to email us at advancedchristian at com, and we are happy to give them information, talk with them, give them a tour, anything they need.
2: All right. Again, Advanced Christian Academy. Well, Katie Boyce, I appreciate your service as principal and teacher at Advanced Christian Academy. And I just want to say thank you uh, to you and to the staff and uh, teachers at Advance for the the ministry that you're providing these young people. That has an impact on the kingdom of God and uh, the body of Christ, and we are grateful. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today as well. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Again, Advanced Christian Academy, located at 2500 Southeast Palmblad in Gresham. You can find out more at their website, to advancedchristian.org. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to wrap, well, everything up.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon, and welcome to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. By the way, if you're interested in more information about the Christian schools that we've been highlighting over the last several weeks, uh, Katie Boyce, the founder and principal of Advanced Christian Academy, and others, let me encourage you to go to our listener savings page. It's just that listener savings. Dot com. And there you're going to see listed all of the schools that we've been talking about, a couple that we've yet to uh, have our conversation with. Uh, but you can find a link to their web pages. You can also find out uh, which schools still have reductions in their tuition. We had uh, savings of up to 40 percent, uh, and there are still some uh, tuition discounts available. And my understanding is we're going to be adding some schools to that List as well, so uh, check it out. If you've been thinking about Christian education but haven't yet made that leap, then um, that's a good place to start. ListenerSavings dot com. So enjoyed talking to these uh, principals and supervisors, administrators, teachers, and so on. And we will—I uh, I, think—we might be continuing that for at least a, a couple more days. So we'll let you know. Well, a Florida college student was suspended after he challenged his professor, who happened to be Muslim. The student, Christian. Uh, The Muslim professor claimed that Jesus' crucifixion at Calvary was a hoax. Well, Marshall Polston, a 20-year-old, rather bold uh, kid who's taken his faith seriously, was suspended uh, later this month by Rollins College in Winter Park after an argument with his Middle Eastern humanities professor over the historical validity of Jesus' death, a failing grade, and a Muslim student's alleged violent rhetoric during a discussion on Sharia law. Well, the professor claimed he was harassed, although video surveillance obtained by the local newspaper suggested otherwise. It was very off-putting and flat-out odd, said Mr. Polston. That's the 20-year-old of his professor's claim about Christianity. The Central Florida Post reported on the 25th of this month, I've traveled the Middle East, lectured at the... Uh, Salahaddon uh, University. I've immersed myself in Muslim culture for many years. Honestly, it reminded me of some of the more radical groups I researched when abroad. And this is the student speaking. Well, Mr. Polston said he was upset by his grade, but baffled as to how his inquiries warranted a report to the Dean of Safety and Suspension. Now, whether religious or not, I believe even those with limited knowledge of Christianity can agree that according to the text, Jesus was crucified and his followers did believe he was divine, that he was God. The sophomore told the College Fix on Saturday, that's the publication that reported on the story, regardless to assert the contrary uh, uh, academic fact is not uh, supported by the evidence, he went on to say. Well, this is not only a a bold 20-year-old who is willing to confront a professor rhetorically, um, but one who is also quite confident in his uh, uh, his worldview. In addition to the student suspension, a Winter Park Police Department report was filed on the 23rd of March, claiming that he violated an order to stay away from class. Well, Mr. Polston, the student, provided uh, uh, the post with a receipt and a video from the Orlando restaurant that he was um, attending at the time to prove that he was nowhere near the campus at the time the professor claimed he was. Well, given the evidence we have gathered and the refusal of either the professor or Rollins College to address the matter, we believe that Rollins College should immediately suspend the professor and open an investigation into what actually happened, the newspaper reported. Mr. Polston, again the student, told the college fix that he has hired an attorney and he's exploring his legal options. Rollins University President Grant Cornwell indirectly addressed the controversy in a statement released on Tuesday reaffirming the school's commitment to a broad diversity of beliefs, identities, ideas, backgrounds and faith traditions. Well, apparently not so much, but he went on to say, At this time, we find ourselves earnestly pursuing our mission, buffeted by the winds of social division that blow throughout our nation and the world. Mr. Cornwell, the president, said all too often public discourse is marked by ideological stridency in place of tempered uh, reasoning, anger in the place of respect, scurrilous media postings posing as news. These current trends make our work both more difficult and more important. Now, interestingly, the student apparently has documentation of what actually happened in the classroom, but they're not really interested in that. And they've taken the side of the professor, perhaps because he's a professor. Maybe he's tenured. Who knows? And not that of the student. But we'll love to continue to follow the story as more information is made available. But The Washington Times reported uh, the incident uh, following a um, uh, more local news report on it as well. Well over a 6-year period Ivy League schools have received tens of billions in tax dollars, bringing in more money from taxpayers than from undergraduate student tuition. In fact, they received more federal cash than 16 state governments wow, and these are Ivy uh, Ivy League schools. Well, the stunning numbers are all part of a new report first seen uh, by Fox News released on Wednesday by Open the Books. That's a nonprofit group whose stated mission is to capture and post online all disclosed spending at every level of government. Well, the 43-page report shows the massive amount of money flowing into not-for-profit Ivy League schools, including payments and entitlements costing taxpayers more than $41 billion from fiscal year 2010 to fiscal year 2015. Well, the spending is controversial because these eight schools, Brown University, Columbia University, Cornell, Dartmouth, Harvard, the University of Pennsylvania, Princeton and Yale have enormous resources at their fingertips, including endowment funds, money raised from donors in 2015 exceeding one hundred and nineteen billion dollars. We'll take that total and split it up among Ivy League school undergrads and it comes out to about two million each. Well, the study says another federal perk, the school pay no taxes on investment gains on their endowment. A tax break is estimated at about $9.6 billion over the six years of the study. In a statement, Princeton suggested the study was flawed because it didn't take into account all the money the college receives and then reinvests. Robert Durkey, a Princeton vice principal or vice president, rather, and secretary, said most of the tax incentives the college receives goes toward libraries, laboratories, classrooms, research and financial aid mm <laughs> the tax exemption for endowment earnings allows these institutions to use all of those earnings to support their missions of teaching and research for this generation and for future generations. He went on to say in a statement, this means that the universities spend earnings now, but they also reinvest a portion so that they can continue to support their programs of teaching and research well into the future. Well, Yale said that rather than being a drain on taxpayers, as the study suggests, the college is a huge financial boon to the towns that surround it. Well, Some of the state colleges and universities might beg to differ in terms of what they receive from taxpayers and whether or not taxpayers feel like they're getting their money's worth. With continued donations at the present rate, the money could provide free tuition to the entire student body. In, perpetually, uh, in perpetuity rather, without uh, new donations. The endowment could provide a full-ride scholarship for all Ivy League undergraduate students for 51 years. The report also shows that in fiscal year 2014, for example, the balance sheet for all eight Ivy League schools combined showed accumulated gross assets of more than $194 billion, or the equivalent of $3.35 million per undergraduate student. Well, you can decide for yourself, but... Wow. I think that's probably the best word to apply at this point. One thing I wanted to mention and ask you to pray about because the pastor of a church in Texas is asking. Uh, believers to pray. Apparently multiple people were killed in a head-on crash on Wednesday between a church bus and a pickup truck outside of San Antonio, Texas. Now, I know we're clear over here on the West Coast and we're not in San Antonio, but apparently this was a group of seniors that were on their way to a choir retreat for Bible study and fellowship. The accident was reported around 2 p.m. local time. Uh, the um, uh, One of the individuals who came up on the scene of the accident said that the church bus was carrying older passengers. Uh, There were possibly seven fatalities. It was a really gruesome scene, he went on to say. The First Baptist knew uh, Branfeld's church asked for those uh, to please be in prayer for all involved in a statement on its Facebook page. The pastor of the church, Brad McLean, uh, said the van was carrying seniors from the Alto Frio Baptist Camp and Conference Center. Uh, who were on a choir retreat where they sang and did Bible study. We just want to be obviously thoughtful of the families, he said. We know one of our church vans was involved in the accident. We're just continuing to wait for information, and they're asking for uh, folks to uh, to pray. So I'm just passing that on. Taking a quick look at what's coming up tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Steve Adams. He's the author of Children's Ministry on Purpose, a Purpose-Driven Approach to Lead Kids to Spiritual Health. So not just teach them Bible studies, but how to help develop their core values and give them a, a healthy start in their walk of faith should they come to faith in Christ. So he'll be my guest. We're also looking forward to a conversation um, with uh, Michelle Pan- uh, uh, let's see Panado. She's with the Portland Adventist Academy, and that will continue our uh, spotlight on Christian education here in the Portland metro area. Well, I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blind for producing, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night.
1: Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.